stand with us as Cindy reads from Exodus 1. Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pathan and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread, and the people of, Is of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard work in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and, serve and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And now if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, 
that we might not desire evil as they did. You may be seated. Thank you, Jim and Cindy, for your leadership in our church, for the impact that you've had. We give thanks for you. So today we begin a, a long a period of looking at the book of Exodus, I should say sitting under God's word uh, as we know it in Exodus, which will take us up to Advent. And I thank you, most of us, we think of this word and we, we think of the, the story. Uh, be it uh, at Easter time, we're watching uh, the Ten Commandments in Charlton Heston, or for a different generation, you know, watching the Prince of Egypt, uh, the Disney film. So we think, while well, it's a spectacular story of, of um, you know, the parting of the sea, and while it's very good to know uh, the, the narrative, the story, the question for us, I think, is what does this have to do with us? that we have this large, at least proportionately so, this very large Hebrew Bible where God is using the Israelites and we sit here as a Gentile congregation, a largely Gentile congregation in Avon and say, where are we in the story? And what's really important for us, crucial, is that the Bible's not a, a bunch of randomly assembled stories, but rather it's one story that there's a very smooth arc from the opening pages all the way to the end. You say, what is it about? It's about God gathering a people for himself. He's redeeming the people back from the curse of sin, gathering a people for his glory and for their prosperity. See, we open the Bible and we see the first humans rebelled against God, right? We don't need you. We're gonna do life on our own terms. We certainly don't wanna think about surrendering to your plan. And all of us have been under that consequence ever since, that we've each gone our own way. We think more of ourselves than we think of God as we've just confessed a moment ago. So God inaugurates a game plan of redemption. That's what the Bible is about, about God calling people to himself to, to acknowledge who he is and what he's done in his grace and kindness to redeem us. So Exodus, in what we just read, you, you say, well, it's got the feeling that we, we've entered in the middle of the story. You say, that's exactly right. Uh, the Hebrew grammarians tell me the first word of the book is actually and. Uh, it's a continuation of what's already transpired. That God first made this promise of redeeming a people to Abraham. So you go back to Genesis 12 and 15 and it's again in chapter 17 and what God says is I'm gonna make a great people for myself and I'm gonna establish this people in a specific location, right? This socio-political state we now know of Israel that I'm gonna deliver my people and that is my promise. And you don't have to flip there now, but this week, if you read the very end of Genesis, where we left off in, uh, believe it or not, late fall 2019, a lot's happened in the world since then when we did the Joseph story. But this is what we're told. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land that is Egypt. Remember, they're there because of a famine. I'll br he'll bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So you're left, you open the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and you're left hanging with this promise. There's a promise that God's gonna deliver his people and establish them in a land. What's gonna happen to that promise? And so we get to Exodus. God redeeming a people for himself, delivering them from, yes, the bondage, the shackles of Egyptian slavery, no doubt about that, but also from the, boundary, or the bondage of sin. And you say, you look at it that way, hopefully the, the connection's a little bit easier. That we too are the people of God, 
who God in his mercy and kindness has freed in the Lord Jesus, and just like the Israelites, he set the boundaries in a covenant relationship, so we find ourselves in that covenant relationship with boundaries in which to live, having been freed by this gracious and merciful, powerful God. So again, what is Exodus about? It's about the liberation and establishment of the people of God and the boundaries, the covenant boundaries within which they want to live in order to prosper and to bring him glory. So that's exactly what we want to be about. And so I hope, in addition to those major themes, uh, that there will be a lot of other applications as well. So if we turn our attention then to Exodus 1, so here, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to this promise? Will God do as he says he's going to do? And our attention first goes to verses 6 and 8. A lot of truth in these, aren't there? Verse 6, then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. And verse 8, very famously, right, there's a new pharaoh in town and he knows not Joseph. There's a really striking line in a lot of ways. Remember, Joseph is raised up to being the prime minister. And so what this means is they uh, are able, uh, Joseph's able to uh, procure favor for the people of God because he's Pharaoh's right-hand guy. Things are going very well for the Hebrews because they got their boy in office. But verse six, time, right, moves on. That that generation dies, Joseph's forgotten, and there's a new pharaoh in town. Reminds me of that wonderful line of Lincoln's in the last of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, right? The debate will go on long after these poor tongues have gone silent. And so it is with us that it's not so much about jockeying for power, but things move on, and it's only God who is faithful. And so consequently, right, Joseph is out of the picture, and what happens? The policy changes. The administration changes in a way that is unfavorable for God's people. And the pressure rises, you notice what Pharaoh tries to do. So the Israelites are multiplying. So he says, I know what I'm doing. I'm just going to make life really hard on the people of God. You say, it couldn't be stressed more, could it? So take a look at verse 11, right? He afflicted them with heavy burdens. So you, you do make, it, you know, make life onerous, make them build things for you, the great city of Ramesses. He made their lives bitter with hard service, right? Verse 13, verses 13 and 14, twice repeated. He ruthlessly made them work as slaves. In other words, Moses is telling, life got really, really hard for the people of God because there's a policy change and there's a new administration. There's a new administration that knows not the Christians. What are God's people gonna do? Say, it's a fact of history, right, that some all across the globe, that some uh, political arrangements have been better for Christians and some are worse. You say, this is nothing new for any person that's been, been uh, under the word of God or lived in the world. You say, some administrations are favorable, some are not. How do the faithful respond? Say, I think verse 12. Verse 12 is an amazing line. So here comes the pressure, getting hard for the people of God. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. God's grace prevailed. Say, you could imagine the frustration of Pharaoh, right? Say, I've done everything I can to ruthlessly treat this people, to make their lives absolutely miserable, to make them curse their God, to put on the pressure, and what happens that the more they're oppressed, the more God's grace abounds, that they multiply and they spread. In other words, what do God's people do when times get hard? We settle under his grace. We trust him, we rest under him. A theme we'll come back to again. So think about it, though, you know, all this. When life gets hard, what do we do? (laughs) So we don't often take that posture. 
Uh, we've become very good, actually, thank, thank goodness, in a lot of ways, that when we're afflicted, we immediately, like, reflexively say, God, get me out of this. Uh, I do anything I can to, to take it away, the, the discomfort, the pain, the annoyance, the confusion, to just, just get me out of it. Instead, what we're going to see, this major theme, that God permits his people to be oppressed so that his power might be put on display, so that he might shine and so that his people uh, might be built up and more trusting of him. So I ask you today, you know, you say, well, you know, you could even say a step worse. It's not only that, but we actually question whether God's in it at all, right? Say, well, God, I'm a, you know, I'm a Christian and my life's really hard right now and I'm annoyed by this. Are you even real? You say, I hope we read something like Exodus 1. And that checks us to say God's in control. His promises can't be thwarted that he delivers, that administrations come and go, but he does not, and he's working his plan, and God's people are to settle under him. So I think as something like Calvin, the quote here uh, that I have in the notes, right, Calvin would say something like this, which is, I think, the right takeaway, unquestionably. Since the people were forgetful and careless of meditating on God's mercies, God could not have better provided for their salvation than by allowing them to be cruelly tried and afflicted. In other words, it's when times are really hard, when we have to ask the question, who's really in charge? Do we believe the things we're talking about? Is God really king? Do his promises really count? Do we trust him? See, it can actually build up the church. To me, it's really one of the great questions of American Christian history is that are we at our best, or could we be a little bit better as a church the more the culture forgets about God? And it would seem that this pattern is borne out, right? That the kind of the worse the culture goes, the stronger the church can be because we're saying, you know, God, we're really, we, we trust in you and life's a little bit harder than it is now. That's, I think, the point of this, that it really is a passage of peace and comfort. That our what really matters in life cannot be determined by secular uh, non-Christian authorities, but rather it's determined by the promises of God that are never thwarted. There will be a people, he says, there will be a people, I will build up the people, I'm gonna deliver the people, and that's the way it's going to be. And so we as God's people settle under that, we rest under that, that God is working in hard times, and that his power is manifested over and over again in scripture, right, in weakness, and when uh, we are, again, maybe a bit intimidated by the culture, that is when God really shines and when his people come together. And so God permits his people to be mistreated so that he might deliver them in a dramatic way so they might not forget him, and so he would, again, be lifted high. I hope that's clear. God permits his people to be mistreated in the, this passage so that he can deliver them. Now, after this doesn't work, right, because of verse 12, God blesses them. Uh, the more they are oppressed, the more God blesses that they're built up in his grace and his kindness. Uh, Pharaoh moves on to plan B. And in plan B, we're gonna see another major theme of Exodus, and, and it's this, that the lines of demarcation between the people of God and people who don't know God as king are quite clear. Uh, reminded me, I had my first uh, Avon Avon Lake football game Friday night, which I very much enjoyed. Very clear which side was which. Uh, you know, say not comparing one side to Pharaoh and one side to God. I'm just making the point. There are two very clear sides. Fantastic atmosphere. Really enjoyed it. But here, the value systems of Israel and Egypt clash. As we go through this book together, you're going to see this is how, when you acknowledge God as king, this is our value system and this is how we live and operate. And if God is not in your picture, 
you're gonna be inclined to operate this way. And you're gonna see that kind of that, that wedge to say who's gonna, gonna, gonna kind of win in this debate, which side are we on? And it happens to be the case that Pharaoh, Pharaoh is the representative of secular powers, and in this case, Egypt. Say ancient Near East, late Bronze Age, you say who is the most powerful figure in the world, arguably? Most powerful figure in the world is Pharaoh. He commanded a vast empire. By this time, Egypt's very old. Uh, he wields uh, tremendous, again, tremendous power politically, and so you have him facing off against Yahweh. Will it be Pharaoh, this mighty man, or will it be Yahweh? And the big test is going to come. You say, what, again, what's the plan B? The uh, plan A didn't work. That is to make life hard for the people of God, but God blesses them. So what is plan B? Say plan B comes in verses 15 and 16. He calls the midwives and he says, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. So what's Pharaoh's plan B? It's genocide. You kill the baby boys, our Egyptian boys will mate with the Hebrew women, they'll be assimilated into Egyptian culture and the Hebrews will be no longer, it's genocide. Say, well, where's your mind going? should be back to that promise. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. What's God say? I'm gonna raise up a great people. They're gonna be fruitful and they're going to multiply that I'm calling a people to myself. So you have a clear conflict. Who's gonna win? Pharaoh, genocide, the people of God wiped out? Or God who says, I've made a promise and nobody thwarts my promise? And the lines go right down. So take a look at a few other items. Take, for example, verse 9. I think this is very typical of the way, again, a drastic form, but the way that we operate when God is not in our picture, that we become paranoid and anxious and try to uh, govern by means of fear, right? So Pharaoh says to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Is that really true? I mean, at this time, Egypt is a massive empire. They've been around a long time. They've got this small little group of people Say, I don't think that's true at all. But Pharaoh, like every tyrant, say every tyrant in history is paranoid. That they're deeply anxious about their control and they try to jockey and push people around. You say, well, that makes perfect sense, right? If God's not in my picture and I'm in a position of power, then this is all I have. So what am I gonna do? Of course, I'm gonna move people around and manipulate them and use everything at my disposal so that I can hang on to power. That's the way we operate. That's the fallen nature that Egyptian leadership, like all tyrannical leadership, manipulates people and exercises a fear-based rule of manipulation and scare tactics. Now you contrast this, you say, how would God's people approach uh, how they live under their king, right, who is the Lord? Say, we rest under him, that we're at peace. Say, our king is a gracious king and a kind king, and he's bought us back, and as Ian prayed, right? He's merciful, and he's kind, and he's in control. He's sovereign, and so God's people don't fret. We don't manipulate. We don't push people around and use scare tactics, and certainly not, you know, tactics of wiping people out. Say, pray not. Rather, it is that we're settled under our king. So again, you contrast the two. Pharaoh, scare tactics, fear-based leadership, pushing people around. Say, definitely see how I get there in my own fallen leadership. Say, yeah, I gotta, I gotta take more of this for myself. I'm, I'm the one who's gotta do. Or you say, no, God's in control and I'm his and I rest under him. So again, 
line of demarcation is clear. How about verse 15? You say, this too, I think, is a concomitant to what I just said in verse nine, that Pharaoh is the kind of guy that will manipulate his subordinates. Can you picture this interaction? I mean, this is the kind of thing you read on a Sunday morning, but really put yourself there. So the most powerful man, he's wielding, I mean, you talk about intimidation. You've got the, the powerful figure of Pharaoh really clamping down on the people of God. And so who does he call? He calls the slave women. I mean, you have the, the different strata of society. You go all the way down, you're gonna pick on the, somebody who in that culture would have been the, the most subordinate person, and you're gonna push him around to do something evil. He says, hey, you come here, Shipran Pua, and this is what you're gonna do. You can imagine how intimidating that meeting would have been, right? Say, we're scared of earthly bosses in our little companies. You see here of the great Pharaoh looking down upon these poor women, and you say, is this something? Again, I fast forward to what Jesus says. He says, you know, the Gentile nations lord their authority over others. But what he says is, my disciples don't do that. You don't mistreat subordinates. You don't put people below you in difficult spots when you're too cowardly to do it yourself. So again, you say, who's going to win the day? Is it the people of God, right, who say we don't operate that way? Or Pharaoh, who operates this way? And of course, verse 16, that Pharaoh uh, gives the order to execute the children. There's a lot of debate, actually, quite interestingly, both in the ancient Near East and then up into the Greco-Roman period of the surviving fragments as to what was the attitude, the prevailing attitude of, say, infanticide in uh, the Mediterranean world. And it seems to be the case that infanticide is not is not a, a uh, it's a, wide, a fairly widely practiced thing in the ancient Near East among non-biblical people, uh, not, not outside the Judeo-Christian tradition. So I guess what I'm trying to say is the regard for human life is a Judeo-Christian distinctive. So Pharaoh says, easy to handle, you kill the baby boys. People of God say, we don't do that. Why don't we do that? because God makes all people sacred in his image. And again, a clear line, is life something to be easily disregarded and tossed to the side, something to manipulate, to hold on to power, or is it a sacred line that ought not be crossed? You say, again, it's a clear line of who's going to win. You know, I think all this, the bigger question behind all this is, how do God's people behave when things get hard and an administration is not in our favor? That's the big question here, right? Do we compromise our values? Do we do our own thing? Or do we settle under God and do what he wants? So we've made two moves so far, right? God permits his people to be oppressed and mistreated so that his power might be put on display and so that his people are built up in faith so that we trust him because he is all that we have, knowing that his plans cannot be thwarted. Secondly, the value systems of God's people and those who are not God's people are going to be clearly drawn and at some point in our lives, we're going to have to decide which one we will obey. So the value systems of Israel and Egypt clash as it is the value systems of God's faithful and the worldly systems will clash. And thirdly, and encouragingly, that this kind of oppression gives opportunity for faith and courage. That again, you say, well, when everything's very smooth and we're the moral majority, maybe less opportunity for courage and faith. But in times like Exodus 1, you say there's real opportunity to say, nope, this is the way I'm going because God's in charge. Isn't it remarkable? I think that verse 15, in a way, you might again, you read verse 15, you say, I, uh, you know, gloss over it. Do you realize how remarkable that is? 
that there are two slave women named at this point in the Bible. Forever, for the last thousands of years, as people have read Exodus, forever enshrined in holy writ are Shipra and Pua, two Hebrew women held up, right, as examples to us, of their courage and their faithfulness. And again, I take you back there. You say you've got all the secular power and authority and opulence of Pharaoh coming down upon you. Say, this is what you're going to do. Look at verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but let the male children live. Say, I hope you have goosebumps there. Pharaoh, we will not obey you because what you're commanding us to do is against God's law. There is a God on high whose promises prevail, and we obey him because we fear him, and that will win the day. You say, these kinds of things, when God's people face them, allow us to behave in a way that's faithful and obedient and with great courage. And so God's kingship They choose God's kingship and his value system over Pharaoh's. Now, a lot of debate on verse 19, right? And you say, exegetically, you know, I I believe in the plenary inspiration of Scripture, but I also know smart enough when to duck. I was not going to talk about what it means to be vigorous when you give birth. I say, you know, that's uh, not one the young uh, male pastor wants to get into here. Uh, So the... uh, But the question is, and you can decide this in your small groups this week, is say, okay, here they come. Did the midwives, they they lie to Pharaoh, don't they? Uh, They lie to Pharaoh. So Calvin would say, well, actually, they did the wrong thing by lying. And Aquinas said, well, no, they did the right thing by uh, doing what's called a serviceable lie. So this has played out in the 1940s in Germany, right? Are you hiding Jews in the basement? Do I tell the truth or do I lie for the preservation of life? I leave that to you in your small groups and take you to this point, that God rewards... God in his kindness rewards faithful obedience of his people. That the times have been hard, the lines are drawn, the intimidation of the secular world is upon the people of God, and the choice comes to the people of God to obey and settle under his leadership. And as we do that, we're settled under the authority of God, resting in him, trusting him, fearing him, and obeying him. As we do that, this pleases God And in the end, he delivers his people and rewards them as he does in verse 21, right? These are not, these kinds of acts of obedience are not lost on God. So you're thinking again, you say, I don't know, this is a bit extreme, you know, genocide and Egypt, you know, this is a bit remote from us. And I would just have you think about a few things. Uh, Think about Christians in China now. Say, this would sound very different to them. I was reading an article in the National Review. They had a special on China, and the headline was this, Christians under Xi, the plight has, light slightly, or the, the plight has lately worsened. Say, Xi is really clamping down on a lot of the Christians the last couple of years. You say, okay, Exodus 1, there's a new administration. There's, not new, there's a new policy. Say, there's a new policy that's putting pressure on the people of God. What should we do? God, you're not in it? No, we rest under God We trust him. His promises can't be thwarted. We obey him, and we trust him, and we're at peace. So the Chinese Christians, you say, this is very, very much something that would be right on their minds, but also for us. You say, it's always uh, a challenge now. We're no longer, I think, a majority movement as we once were in America. Uh, to really ask this question, right? To say, am I the one who's going to be really fired up uh, at uh, what I hear on the news or think, if only we get our people in Washington, then all my problems would go away? Say, no. No, administrations come and go. God is king. Christ is king. We rest under him. We obey him. We fear him. 
and this is what wins the day. Now, say you're not a Christian today. I'm always glad we have non-Christians here. Uh, you write me an email during the week and say, I'd like to come, or I'm bringing a friend who's not a Christian. You're thinking, you say, this is really weird. I mean, people just spend a half hour talking about Exodus 1 and the ancient Near East. And what's the, I hope that you, as you think about this this week, you think about the great story of Scripture, and you look at what's happening in the world and watch the replays of 9-11 last night on that documentary. You're watching that. You're thinking about Afghanistan. You say, what a mess. People you've known who've died, you think, what a mess this is. This world is not as it should be. And deep down in your heart, you say, you know, I wish there was one who could bind up the wounds, who would set the world right, who say, I could have a connection with my maker that it would just all one day work out. And you say, you're thinking that way. You say, can you see the offer in Jesus? If you think this story about a people of God being forged in oppression is just a historical story, say, every Christian will tell you, say, no, that's us. The people of God forged on the anvil of affliction with Christ on the cross, taking the blow for us. They say all these great problems are a consequence of human sin, that we've pumped our fist at our maker, and God put forth Jesus, and we can tuck into him, right, as we surrender to him, say, God, only you can make it right in Christ, and I surrender my life to you, and I want to live for you no matter what comes my way. I want to be settled under your rule and right with you. I pray if you're not a Christian that you would think about that. Ask the big questions. What do you see in the world? What do you feel deep down? And don't you see that Christ, Christ has been put forth and you can have a relationship with him as you surrender to him, surrender on God's terms and be right with God. For those of us who are Christians, you say, I hope we see ourselves in the story. Say, times will go up and down. We need not be frustrated. Yeah, we have preferences, but we're settled under Jesus the King and we're to build each other up in that. And as we're faithfully obedient, God will reward and deliver his people as we'll see in the upcoming weeks. So those things uh, being said, do uh, study this further in your small groups. And again, a long discussion we're starting, but may we be found faithful, I'll pray. Lord, I think of Shifra and Pua. I think of them, the impulse in all of us to be people pleasers and to have the most intimidating person in the world staring down at you to say this is what you're going to do. And for those two ladies and probably many, many other midwives under them to say we don't do that because we fear God. Lord, help us to emulate that even hopefully not on a, ever on a scale of genocide or a matter of life and death, but in a lot of small ways to say there's a tremendous uh, pressure in various ways to compromise our values, uh, to be embarrassed about Jesus, uh, loads of things. We say it'd be so much easier just to round the corners off, to go with the flow, to not help us to see in this that you reward the kind of faithful courage to say, no, Jesus is king, and we acknowledge him, and Lord, help us to build each other up that the church, we must be unified in these truths, we must abound in love, help us to grow stronger as a church family. Lord, help us again to be who you've called us to be, the people of God. We've been delivered, been delivered on the cross of Christ and now set forth with the boundaries which to best enjoy you and which best for you to multiply your kingdom through us. Help this sink in this week in Christ's name.